Welcome to the Future of Science podcast. Today, we're talking to Alison Dittmann, president and CEO of the Foresight Institute, a nonprofit that's focused on the beneficial development of high-impact technologies. Alison told us about the history behind Foresight and why it was started in the first place. Then we dove into predicting progress. How good are we at predicting technological development? When predictions are not met, is it because those predictions were wrong or are we simply underperforming in reaching that progress? And when we do make significant progress in an area, what are the drivers of that? We also covered the opportunities of interdisciplinary collaboration to solve humanity's biggest problems and the difficulties that researchers encounter when attempting this. Finally, Alison told us what she thinks the biggest opportunities and risks facing humanity are. I'll give you a hint. Both start with A and end with I. Enjoy the episode. So Alison, you're the president and CEO of Foresight Institute. Can you give us a little bit of a background on Foresight? Like, why was it launched? Like, what, what's the story here and what's the purpose? Yeah, so Foresight Institute, uh, sometimes people think that I'm the founder of Foresight Institute. I'm not, in fact. It was founded <laughs> in 1987, so I guess four years before I was born. Um, and I think it's always really interesting kind of like to think about the fact that when I was kind of like a toddler and toddling about the world, um, people at the organization were like really kind of like dead set on making the future happen in a positive way. Uh, and I think it's really inspiring when I go back into our archives that back in the day in 1987, really where we didn't have many of the tools for technological progress that we now kind of think of as um, kind of second nature when they didn't exist back then people were already um, kind of like really ambitiously thinking and working towards long-term futures and so we were founded on the book engines of creation which is a book about kind of the long-term potential of molecular nanotechnology in combination with other technologies and so ai was the biggest one that um kind of like featured um in that book uh, next to molecular nanotechnology and so then people, uh, Eric Dressler, who co-founded Foster together with um, Christine Peterson, they basically looked at the long-term potential of molecular nanotechnology in combination with AI and the potential implications of these technologies on something like human longevity, on um, material science in general, um, but then also in particular with an eye on a better, cleaner environment, cleaner energy, and then kind of thinking this further into what could we do with better material science for also exploring space. And so there was a lot of space exploration in there. Um, and so anyway, it was just this really kind of like interdisciplinary lens through which to look at um, a very ambitious, but nevertheless really like exciting and human aligned long-term future for humanity. And so this book inspired a lot of people that were back in the days already thinking about these long-term issues. And so Foresight Institute was founded based on the book. It became this kind of like shelling point because back in the days there weren't really many organizations that were thinking long-term about the future and ambitiously about the future that also were doing so from a very hard science and tech lens. Mm -hmm. And so it basically garnered a lot of kind of like early science and tech entrepreneurs, um, researchers, uh, visionaries in the Bay Area around these technologies. And since then, we've kind of been growing out uh, various individual strains, which I can talk more about, but like into the, for the origin story, me not having been there, this is my read of it. <laughs> <laughs> this is so interesting. I'm fascinated that uh, AI already played a role in in the foundation of this and at the end of the 70s. That, like most yeah. people didn't even know what a computer is back then. Yeah, I mean, Marvin Minsky was 
on our early advisory board. And I think that, you know, Minsky wrote the society of mind, which is this really wonderful kind of like book about not only uh, artificial intelligence, but also kind of um, ways in which intelligence generally works about like different agents that are in our head and that lead to human intelligence by the fact that we're conflicted and we have these competing interests in, in our human head and in society in general. And so it was this more ecosystem approach to intelligence. And so that also featured in, um, in engines of creation, this kind of like more thinking about intelligence as this ecosystem of individual entities that um, kind of like are specialized in individual in, in different functions and that collaborate for this greater intelligence that comes together and I think it also showed in the Agoric Open Systems papers, which Mark Miller and uh, Eric Drexler wrote together, where they also had this kind of like, yeah, this notion of civilization as the ultimate superintelligence and like a little bit more of an ecosystem approach to it. And I think now we see that kind of coming back really strongly with different approaches to AI um, that have this more uh, kind of like, I guess, decentralized um, approach of looking at intelligence as this, um, yeah, as this ecosystem of kind of collaborating specialized entities that work together um, to compose their local knowledge into a, a larger superintelligence. So it's been really interesting to see just how that notion kind of like kept with us and developed over the last 37 years. Yeah, yeah, that's truly visionary. Um, really interesting. I'm curious, how do you guys or how does Foresight pick like a focus area, like you mentioned, it was uh, nanotechnologies and then also AI in the beginning. And then I know you guys are focused on a lot, a lot of other things now as well. What's the process here? How do you determine like, hey, this is very important. We should be focusing on this. Yeah, well, I remember basically when I was still in, um, I guess, in Germany, really at the beginning and then later in the UK. Um, and when you start thinking about the long term future and which technologies are important, like there's a few that really come to mind, right? Like, um, and one of them is AI, obviously, like one of them is kind of like um, molecular nanotechnology because it's a little bit of a similar process to what like AI can do with with bits. Molecular nanotechnology could potentially do with atoms, like basically having this like more universal approach to rethinking the way that atoms are structured. And so, yeah, so I think those two were kind of like, I think obvious really. But then if you think about the, uh, implications of these technologies on different fields, you know, a really big thing that we have to get better at is like human health and longevity, right? And so we can think about uh, human health and longevity through like a molecular nanotechnology uh, lens, because ultimately many of the things that go wrong <laughs> over the course of our lives have to do with <laughs> atoms <laughs> in our body. Uh, but we can also think about it through other means. And so basically these two kind of like AI and molecular nanotechnology were like our, our, our original kind of tools with which we wanted to kind of make the future a better place. But over time, you also think that, um, you know, many of the problems in longevity could also be addressed through other means. So even if we don't get, uh, you know, a molecular, advanced molecular nanotechnology tools, we still have to make progress on longevity. Like that is just a goal um, uh, that we have to pursue. And so there's lots of other different tools that came along over the years. And so we kind of expanded longevity out as a uh, separate focus area because it just made sense to also take other advances into account to make progress on longevity. And then the second one uh, for newer technology, same thing, you know, like ultimately it would be wonderful if we could actually like, you know, uh, for example, have cryopreservation uh, of the human brain there uh, for that we really would probably likely need advanced molecular nanotechnology to do it well. But in the meantime, for newer technology, especially if you have like long-term goals, like um, uh, whole brain emulations or, you know, like uh, advanced brain computer interfaces, there's a lot that we can do, um, you know, without nanotechnology uh, to make progress in these areas. 
And we wouldn't have expanded in these areas if they were taken up sufficiently by, um, by other organizations. But like, it just so happened that, um, basically like, that's why I started with the fact that when I was still in Germany, I thought that, oh, over the course of a few years, many people or many organizations will just pile in and like, and those would be these really explored areas that are just like an obvious priority for, um, for many projects to make progress on. But, um, it didn't really uh, happen that way. And so, you know, I really wish there were more orgs that would be taking on these issues. And I welcome anyone who's interested really taking on these issues, because I think often as the bystander, you think that, um, there are enough projects working on these, um, and working on these really important problems, but then there aren't. So we'd be very happy to give some of these uh, focus areas that we have, um, away and, uh, and start collaborating <laughs> on them uh, and so forth, because we're not like, you know, we're not like a, a leading organization in that space, but I think many of the leading orgs in these spaces don't often tackle the very long-term goals in these spaces. So I think where I see our comparative advantage is maybe taking people within a field such as like newer technology and um, having them kind of like get together an ecosystem in a container where they can think about the long-term goals of that space mm-hmm. um, without it being uh, perhaps like a cookie or something or without it being like artificially constrained by an institutional funding scheme or something mm-hmm. um, that already exists. And I think the other, and that's the last point I will say on this, the other kind of comparative advantage that we have is the fact that we take on more than just one technology because it's not like we are a leading org in any one of these areas, but because we have an oversight or a little bit of a bird's eye view also what's going on in other fields, we can often connect the dots in useful ways um, where we allow interdisciplinary progress to happen. And so I think much of the, I think, interesting applications that we'll see over the next 10, 15 years are at the intersection of different technologies. And so they're often not, uh, these areas or these frontiers often can't really be totally grasped from one area. And so I think it's good that there's at least a few people or orgs or Mm -hmm. something that are trying to look at where could there be individual different interesting intersections where we should be focusing on more than we currently do. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you do, please take a sec to leave a review or subscribe to this podcast to help us reach more people. Thanks. You guys are obviously doing a lot of like deep thinking about future technological development. And one of the things that did, that you mentioned in your in your seminar, which actually really triggered my interest, was that you, you showed this excerpt from uh, Extropy magazine from the 90s where different experts uh, and thought leaders made predictions on, on fundamental developments, uh, like two-century uh, biological lifespan and cheap fusion energy and so on and so forth. And some of them were on target. Some of them seemed irrelevant, but many seemed to be like totally overconfident, right? So they, they seem to be completely off. And I'm wondering, so I've, I've actually studied overconfidence long, long time ago. So I'm wondering why. So is, uh, so why were they so overconfident? Was this simply like errors in judgment on, on behalf of the experts? Or is there a fundamental problem with our ability to make, uh, progress on many of these frontiers Mm, maybe it's a mix of both i mean i would i definitely think it's the latter (laughs) um (laughs) to the extent that you know i think what we've seen throughout the history of science is that specific fields are always harder than we think we've seen that in physics we've seen that you know in uh, in biology we've seen that in so many individual areas like and that we think that we kind of grok a field and then we start looking and we feel like we've almost uh, kind of like uncover the, the big secrets in there. And then we uncover this entirely new subfield that we now have to dig into. And so it's almost like the nature of understanding is just like to know how little you know about a, mm-hmm. about a specific field. So I think it's part of it was just almost predictable, but it's hard to put that 
to actually put that error bar into your prediction up front. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, part of that is just most predictable. But, but I think a, a big part is also just the fact that, um, you know, we've definitely, we could have made progress faster if it wasn't for like a lot of, I guess, like almost social and kind of like contingent um, factors that that are, that have started hampering progress along the way. Um, and And I think we could definitely do better. I think one thing that is always terrifying to me is the fact that, you know, when I think about the goals that people within the foresight community had in 1987, you would think that 37 later, 37 years later, it's not only that we've made more progress on these goals than we currently have, but you would also, in addition, think that we have new goals, right? You would think that we now have higher, like we, we picked new targets, basically. Like, you know, like it's crazy to think that we still are trying to make progress on the same goals that we had 37 years ago. You know, if we were well-functioning as a, um, you know, as a civilization, uh, you would expect that people also set higher targets 37 years later. But nevertheless, we're still kind of like gradually gearing up to make progress on goals that people came up with so long ago. And obviously, it's not like they were first, um, like it's not like whole innovation was first discussed at a foresight conference or something, but like people really started taking it seriously around that time in general in the kind of like future-oriented space. And and I think the fact that we're kind of like still very early on and making progress on these goals is, um, is definitely, it's, it's too bad. And I think we can do better and we should totally try to do better. So what do you think are some of the hurdles to, uh, to the technological progress that, that you guys are envisioning? Well, I think there's really like a, a lot of different ones. And I think many people, have, like I can only tell you the ones that I see, I guess, from my lens, but um, someone, you know, who's really working perhaps in the government um, they could really tell you better from that lens. Someone who's really working on like venture funding could tell you better from that lens and so forth. But I think, you know, from like just convening people um, that are in these different orgs, like a few bits that often tend to kind of like pop up is really like one um, is this problem that like, you know, I think me- much of progress is really downstream of funding, right? Um, and I think, for example, if you look at academia, um, you know, funding, for like basically like funding to some extent also really like influences what people are focused on. Like, um, you know, people are trying to, people are like writing their specific grant proposals or like even just thinking about what they want to do based on what they think they could, um, they could get paid for and like very reasonably and rationally. So, right. Mm -hmm. But I think the other problem that you guys also often talk about is the fact that, you know, if you want to get tenure and like actually want to make a living and want to have like, a lifestyle that is sustainable, you need to kind of tailor your research towards something that will actually get published. So you have the citation score that uh, could maybe get you there. Uh, And that is often incremental bits and pieces. Like, you know, like I think we don't really incentivize going out on a a whim, um, you know, like putting a crazy thesis, um, uh, um, putting a crazy thesis out there and then trying to kind of like prove it or prove it wrong. Like I think that is just not really incentivized from a financial aspect. It isn't, but then also just from a kind of like social status uh, perspective, it isn't really very much incentivized. And I think that's really a big problem. And I'm, I'm sure that you've had this up and down, this problem on the podcast. Uh, it's a really big one, you know. Um, it is unfortunate, you know. Like, I think one thing that oftentimes um, people think afterwards at our workshops is that um, many folks in academia, for example, that come together, for example, to think about molecular manufacturing uh, in our molecular machines workshops, for example, they don't really have another space where they can think about these things. And even though we can't really, unfortunately, offer them the funding even to pursue this, 
um, basically some of them say that at least you're shifting the Overton window again. You know, you're making it okay over the course of two days on a weekend or something in these workshops to think about this and to talk about it aloud because there aren't really many, I think, venues that even allow these types of um, kind of like long-term, these conversations about long-term goals. And ideally, yes, we would have the funding to put money behind this at the end of a workshop to like actually incentivize the products that are generated at these workshops to really make uh, a difference. But even without it, I guess it's people are already kind of like um, happy to some extent that they just get to just get to like think about these things again, because there is so little opportunity to do it. I think otherwise. Um, um, and so, yeah, basically just, we have to kind of like incentivize people just to kind of start thinking about this. I think one big problem that we often see at these workshops is that um in order for very big funders, let's say the government, to be taken on a project again, let's say like molecular 3D printing, they need to kind of know that there's a there there and that people with like significant institutional credibility would like um, put their lab, put their name um, behind it. Uh, and obviously things like molecular 3D printing would have to be like a, uh, a an effort across different labs. Right? It's not just like one lab being able to take that on because it uh, combines like physics, chemistry, <laughs> computational modeling and so forth. But I think for big funders to be able to fund something like this in the kind of like long-term span of a few years and like a, a very high multi-million dollar project, and they need to know that there's individual labs that could be interested in this um, um, to signal to them that this is possible. But for individual labs to even talk about the fact that they could be interested in doing something like this, they need to know that there's a carrot at the end of this and someone actually interested in like funding something like that, right? And so this kind of chicken and egg problem yeah. where it's really difficult to corral people around this. And so what we're trying to do in these workshops is to bring these people together and like kind of just like suspend disbelief for a second, just imagine there was funding available. How would one actually try to do make progress on something like that? And the idea is that perhaps if we co come up with a smaller prototype of this longer term goal, maybe a few individual philanthropists will be interested in actually funding a smaller prototype to uh, to kind of like to get to the to get to the stage where it could be interesting for like the very very long term funders to take something like that on again, and that is happening in molecular nanotechnology, but it's also in whole brain emulation. Again, a very kind of audacious goal, a multi billion dollar project, definitely a few years, I would say. Um, and the same happens, I, I guess, through all of the different scientific fields that we take. So I think that we just have to kind of like do the baby steps without the funding to incentivize long-term funding to eventually come in when it's safe for them to do so and when we can really signal to them that that it's useful to fund this. But um, it's really difficult. I think you, yeah, you kind of like on both ends, it's a chicken and egg problem, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. And even for you guys who are, who are thinking about, you know, very long-term future and, or predicting the future or, you know, steps towards a particular desirable or undesirable future, um, so how how do you actually know which approaches are more likely to work? I, I guess this is more of a methodological question, right? So there's always, uh, there's it's obviously very, very difficult to predict the future. And I'm just wondering, so for you guys who have been doing that for, for such a long time, are there certain approaches to, to doing that that work better than others? For example, to, to figure out like, which technologies will actually be relevant in the future or which which approaches um, it's actually worth focusing on? I would say, you know, ask someone who's actually like technical in a specific area um, because, you know, I'm like, I think what we're trying to do to some extent is also be somewhat technology agnostic. Like, you know, we were like the main, er the main area that we were 
kind of like founded to support was molecular nanotechnology, but we're not called a molecular nanotechnology institute, but we're called Fossil Institute. And uh, the reason for that being is that people at the beginning, our founders realized that like, it's very difficult to predict which technologies will be uh, important on the long run. And ultimately we can be somewhat technology agnostic. Everyone has their favorite technology, obviously, that they think is going to uh, totally get us all the way. But I think our approach was always a little bit more agnostic. It was always like, let's just bring people together that really care about um, you know, ambitious, positive, long-term futures for humanity um, that, that have a scientific and te technical background, but that are somewhat also fluid. Um, and, and you know, they're, they're not like totally hung up on this one particular technology that needs to pan out. And I think if you look at our yeah. constituents, one interesting thing is that people are interested in more than one technology. So people usually like, let's say they have a bio, uh, bio background. So they join our longevity track. And then, you know, after a few months, they're just like, hey, can I also join the molecular nanotechnology track? And then I would actually also really enjoy the space track because I'm thinking about this intersection here. And so I think this more interdisciplinary lens of not having to pick a particular winner is kind of like what we're going for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously you have different stages in which different technologies become relevant. And I do think that there's a few that are perhaps a little bit more general than others. That, like, for example, uh, AI is definitely one of these technologies that are, just have a big multiplying factor for all of our other fields, right? Not just our, not just our AI track uh, is the one that talks about AI, but like every single one in molecular nanotechnology, you have new simulations that we can do now. You have new design tools um, that are in AI enabled. In our neuroscience tool, we just had someone present on brain GPT, which, you know, like uh, I think I also discussed a little bit in the seminar, but like really like being able to kind of like make sense of the neuroscience li literature. So I think AI is a little bit of a different beast in that sense. But in general, we try to be somewhat technology agnostic, even though obviously everyone has their favorites. <laughs> Right. And so one of the things that, that you guys uh, have been doing now for a while is uh, to use tech trees as a tool to think about potential futures, right? So maybe tell us very briefly what are tech trees uh, and what are, you, what are they used for? Um, yeah, so tech trees are, um, it's not like we came up with them. So basically, I think the interesting bit about tech trees was really that um, many people kind of started thinking about them in the span of like kind of like five years. Like uh, I know that uh, Trent McConaughey had a post about, uh, I think he called it the map um, towards long-term civilizational self-realization. So he ma made a tech tree from where we currently are to building Dyson spheres and exploring the cosmos. So it was a very meta tech tree combining <laughs> or like basically it was like the tech tree con to contain all tech trees, like um, which basically had a, a version on, kind of like AI and AI automation, a version on energy, a version on um, on whole brain emulations and so forth. Then Balaji made one that was more focused from an investor standpoint. Can I create a tech tree that would almost be like my VC thesis? So instead mm -hmm. of like saying like, this is the areas that we invest in, like these are the goals that I have and these are the different technologies that I need to slot in. And then we came up with more from a perspective of like, we wanted to map the different fields that we're supporting because I get these emails um, often of just like a new person, super talented, um, you know, just finishing up their PhD. And they're like, I really want to help, um, you know, solve longevity, escape velocity. What do I best do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, really, I, have, I couldn't, I couldn't have less of an idea. I'm definitely the wrong person to ask, but it would, wouldn't it be nice to have something like an overview of the 
kind of like field of longevity from where we currently are to like individual goals within longevity, such as like, you know, really rejuvenation, but also sometimes body replacement, uh, sometimes really like body enhancement um, and the different labs that are working on it, the different capabilities that we have to build out and kind of stack them up in terms of where we need to go so that people can kind of self-select to the individual uh, area that they want to make a progress on or that even funders that come into the space have a little bit more of a map of like these are kind of projects that are already out there that I could be supporting or here is an open challenge. I could put some money down to support progress in this area. Mm-hmm. And so we started mapping our individual um, kind of like focus areas from uh, molecular nanotechnology to longevity biotech to neurotechnologies to uh, intelligent corporations. So mostly like cryptography and AI to space. And so we started mapping these areas. It took a, quite a long time. It took over a year or something to get to like a brute structure. And it's kind of like the problem with it is like the moment you do it, it's obviously outdated. <laughs> um, but the idea was to kind of like really open source them. And now we have started collaborating with Martin and a few folks at Lateral that are building these AI-enabled tech trees. And so the idea here is that you can have much of the kind of like um, much of the skeleton of a tech tree um, be done by an AI-enabled kind of discourse, discord graph like tool that uh, just maps much of this, um, much of the tree automatically. Um, and so we are currently revamping all of our tech trees to be these more AI generated skeletons. Mm-hmm. And so the idea would be that rather than having a tech tree lead, like for example, last year we literally had a technical research in each of these areas through literature review, like, uh, kind of like 24 seven on these, uh, on these tech trees to build them. Rather than doing that, you can fill in the skeletons um, through AI and then you'd have to have individual researchers that would check for hallucinations that would fill in individual bits and pieces, um, but to make it a little bit more sustainable and also to make it more up-to-date um, in, in terms of like how we could build and use them. And so that's where we're currently at. And so we're revamping uh, the tech trees, focusing mostly on longevity bio and on um, newer science, especially for AI and on the other tech tree for intelligent corporations. So basically like an AI-focused tech tree that maps out different strategies and different um, approaches to AI. Um, and like, because we not just want to advance technological progress across the board, but we also have this mandate of making sure the future goes well. Um, we have this new idea of putting in differential technology nodes. And so um, if, you know, I don't know how much familiar people listen to this podcast will be with the concept of DTD, which is differential technology development. And that's the idea that oftentimes we not just want to push an area or technology forward kind of like at absolutum um, and make the maximum progress across the board. But uh, sometimes uh, it's interesting to think also about the timing of technology. So for example, if we want to advance uh, AI, um, you know, are there specific technologies within AI that we could advance first that will make the field of AI more secure and safe on the long term. So mm-hmm. can we build in some of these like um, safety enhancing technologies first? So for me, the, for example, that would be focus on computer security. <laughs> that is going to be very, very important um, no matter what future we're going to enter. And so the idea would be to also think about uh, specific like timing and steps and uh, individual undervalued opportunities to make kind of like the long-term de- development of this technology um, more fruitful, better, and more kind of aligned with human interests. And so, yeah, that's currently where we're standing on this, but we're hoping to kind of like launch the V2 of these tech trees sometimes early next year. That's really interesting. So um, how how would you say can tech trees be curated in a way that you're preventing really big errors in judgment? Or how do you uh, deal with disruptive discoveries that are completely accidental, like x-ray or penicillin? 
Yeah, well, that's a, an amazing question. And it's part of the reason why we're trying to build not just one tech tree in one area, but we're really building one in nano, bio, neuro, AI, and space. And the idea here really is that many of the technological area, obviously we're not mapping the whole world of technological development. There's a lot of things in energy that could be along, could come along, or a lot of like things in just like tool building for scientific discovery that mm-hmm. or in like basic research that we don't even have a grasp on that could totally revolutionize the field. But our thinking was that by mapping different areas and by having this um, kind of like hunch or like that often kind of progress will happen at the intersection of areas, at least we kind of can monitor for like AI tools that will be coming online uh, through the AI and intelligent cooperation tech tree that could potentially be useful for biotechnology development in the other tree. And so, you know, oftentimes we have the same, uh, really the same kind of like uh, root technologies pop up all over the mm-hmm. uh, different tech trees. And so it's interesting kind of like to figure out where one tech tree can be the enabling tool for another mm-hmm. or where one of them kind of is blocked by progress in another area. And so we're trying to kind of like get more kind of like um, connections between the different tech trees made. Um, so that's one thing that I would say basically, because it also allows you to say more things about timing of a different field. So for example, if you know that we need a specific um, kind of like, let's say, privacy-preserving machine learning tool to make progress on, um, let's say, um, on some longevity goals that uh, would require people to make more sense of data that is currently sensitive and cannot be shared. Um, then we can look at the uh, AI tech tree and see like, how far along is this specific privacy-preserving machine learning area already? Are there specific areas that we could speed up that would kind of lead to a lot more progress down the line on the, in the biotech field? Um, so that's, I guess, one way in which we try to tackle it. And then I think beyond that, um, it's it's just very difficult, I think, to predict these unpredictable <laughs> advances. Um, and and I think that, um, yeah, I think I think it's hard to do. One thing that kind of would stand uh, totally, that, that would be like my non plus ultra, if we could possibly do that, is to um, have things like prediction markets run on mm. the tech trees and so yeah. you know it's definitely sort of like a more warm intelligence almost right yeah so basically you know like the idea would be that for example for a specific capability on a tree you could actually like have a prediction market running when we will get that capability mm-hmm. because like that you couldn't just you wouldn't just be able to time specific capabilities relative to each other right. but you could also see let's say a new uh, a new lab enters the field like Alsa's lab enters the field and it's focused on specific areas within longevity do people update their predictions on how mm-hmm. fast we can get that specific capability? Mm-hmm. Because if they do, they think that Altos will be a very successful company. Mm-hmm. And that's great to know for people that are interested in Altos. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> you can also kind of like track progress of individual new projects in a space based on by how much people are updating on progress in an existing area um, after that uh, new project comes on stage, you know? So I think yeah. that's an interesting uh, an interesting bit of timing, technological developments, but we're very far away from that. First, we need to build off the tech tree infrastructure, <laughs> and then we can uh, hopefully have prediction markets run on them. But yeah, we we are we're very very far away from that. Yeah, but do you have a personal favorite tech tree? <laughs> well, currently, I mean, we're updating them all right now, so I I think it would be really hard for me to pick a current winner because they're going to change so much. Do you have one that you're really excited about personally? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're all, it's kind of like hard. It's like picking like your favorite child. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, because we won't tell them. 
<laughs> well, I mean, there's the one, there's the space of like, which field do I care the most about, you know, so that's yeah. going to naturally screw my mm -hmm. inclinations here. And like, they are definitely, I care a lot about longevity personally, but then I think from a more civilizational perspective, I care a lot about the AI tech tree going mm -hmm. well, because that's going to also be like a pretty difficult one to rebuild um, because it's just so large. Um, uh, and then also I think an interesting one uh, is the kind of like newer tech tree, which is going to have a big whole brain emulation focus. And I think that's interesting because there isn't, so the whole brain emulation roadmap, the last one really where people really took a stab at that was written in 2007 by Andrew Sandberg and Nick Bostrom. And last year we did a big whole brain emulation workshop um, with Andrew Sandberg to try to revamp that whole brain emulation roadmap in particular vis-a-vis shorter AI timelines. So the idea was like, usually people have very long timelines on things like whole brain emulation. It's very difficult to do. And people have much shorter timelines on artificial intelligence kind of coming into the fold. Um, but the idea was like, well, are there different levers where we would actually be much more optimistic about whole brain emulation coming earlier? Because people think that it could also be an interesting AI safety strategy because it's easier to align human minds with human goals than uh, artificial Uh, alien minds with human goals. And so if we could have things that are even like lo-fi uploads of a human, maybe it would be easier to align them with human values than it would be than it would be to do an to, to align an entirely artificial agent that shares none of our culture evolution, none of our biological um kind of like um priors um then, then it would be to align those. And so I think for that we had this big workshop. We're now revamping the whole emulation roadmap. Um, because it's crazy that roadmaps don't get updated. Like 2007, we have so many new tools now available. But I think an interesting kind of component of that would be to do this neuro, um, neuroscience and neurotech for AI safety uh, tech tree. And so I'm really excited about that just because I think it is so undervalued. Like people think about longevity as a field and where there's undervalued areas. People think about, you know, um, even AI as a field <laughs> and where there's undervalued approaches. But very few people think of this kind of like area of like brain computer interfaces, whole brain relation for AI safety. It's just such an undervalued weird niche um, where I'm just excited because there isn't uh, very much other stuff out there yet. Yeah, cool. that's, that's really, really interesting. And I think it captures the theme really well that I've been noticing just as you're talking. There's all these areas that just intersect and you've mentioned interdisciplinarity a lot um, also in this conversation. And so I'm curious, um, also in the seminar, you mentioned that this interdisciplinary working together and collaboration, while it's super important for stuff like this to actually work for these really cool advancements, um, I think you mentioned in the seminar that the scientists you uh, tend to talk to often also mention interdisciplinary as like one of the problems in working together, you know, like This is just interesting. And do, I'm, I'm curious, like, do you have any tricks for making that collaboration easier, given that that's what you really focus on a lot? And what do you think are the underlying issues? Like, why is it so hard to work together across disciplines? Like, is that, is that like caused in the way we educate people? Um, where is that coming from? And yeah, what are the ways that we can maybe fix it? Well, I think part of it is just a kind of like a natural, it's, it's almost a complement to civilization in the sense that, you know, back in the days it was really like Plato or something uh, like basically like someone who could pretty much have a good 
grasp. Like philosophers were also physicists, were also mathematicians, were also logici- logicians, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, were also scientists. You know, like it was really like we had the amount of knowledge was enough for one person to kind of like grok different disciplines. And now we've just made so much progress that that's just entirely impossible. I mean, like, you know, it's it's almost impossible for one person to grok one discipline, let alone yeah. like you to actually grok at a deep level where it matters different disciplines. So it's to some extent a compliment for civilization that we've had enough progress that it doesn't fit into the mind of one man. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I think it's also, you know, hopefully we can develop AI tools that um, are able to translate different disciplines in a way where it's easier for mm-hmm. people from another discipline to actually understand that, right? So like basically like maybe through simulations, maybe through like kind of connecting the dots at levels where humans are not good at like modeling them in our heads, like the mm-hmm. level of chemistry or the level of physics, we're just not, not really built for, for that. Like um, our cognitive architecture is not really made for that. So it's almost crazy that we can understand it at the level that we currently can. So I think yeah, partly it's because we've made so much progress. Partly it's because um, the jargon that different disciplines have, it just takes so much more time to get up to speed on one, but it's also there for a reason, right? People just didn't, people didn't invent jargon for, really just patting themselves on the back for using crazy Latin terms. It was for a reason, right? Um, and But I think like getting away from that again and maybe using AI to help translate across these different languages really <laughs> um, would, be, would be really useful. And across metrics, right? Like it's, I think it's really difficult for us to wrap our head around um, the metrics that are used in one discipline, let alone across disciplines and how they interfere with each other and what weird phenomena are, we have to take care of on a physical level that we may not really need to take care of on a chemical, like when we talk about chemistry, like it's just interesting to think about the individual. It's, it's very interesting and difficult to think about the different um, factors that I play that uh, at different levels of the stack, you know, and that's just too much for me. I mean, I can't, I can't even like make a dent in this, but I think especially those people that really have a special expertise in one area, they think it's totally impossible. <laughs> and and so for me, the fact that I think it's like a little bit impossible makes me aware of like how little I know about a space because the people that really know a lot about a space, they really, they they just point out the kind of sheer complications that are really, that, that are at play when you think about interdisciplinary progress and having all these different factors in your head that influence uh, one field, but not the other. So I hope that AI can help us make some progress by translating between different fields, disciplines, people, different scales, metrics, uh, all of this stuff. Mm, yeah, very interesting. That would be that would be uh, a huge progress, uh, of course. I'm wondering though, how much can technology solve this, and how much of this is like a um, human or a cultural issue? Where I think you also mentioned this during the seminar. Like, if you're an expert in one field, it's very hard to like step over your ego and admit, I know nothing about this field. So you tell me and you be my teacher. So yeah. How, how much do you think um, like technology can solve this? Yeah. I think that problem is also like, that's definitely one problem. And then there's this other, like, I think really wonderful, laudable uh, issue is that often scientists are really humble. You know, they mm. don't really want to make strong claims about another area that they know nothing about. Um, and so it's not just that, it's kind of uncomfortable to learn about another area that you know nothing about. But even if you have uh, kind of a theory about that, how that other area could work, it's still kind of like often seen as bad form mm. to venture out and make 
strong statements about an area that is not your specialized <laughs> field of you expertise. Even though some, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't dare. Even though sometimes people have great ideas about these other areas, uh-huh. you know, like, I mean, Feynman, like, it was really like relatively polymathic uh, for the kind of level that he was operating at. Um, and, you know, he said very interesting things in other areas too. Some of them are controversial uh, than others, but like, I think <laughs> there are, like, you know, I think, I think we somehow have to get away from this notion that like, you know, only like an expert with like X amount of um, years of experience is like actually credible. And I feel like I think we should really mm. take people um, at face value and like test their predictions, even if it's about a field that they are not technically, um, that they're not technically an expert in. I think it's useful to encourage that um, because that is kind of like encouraging people to lean more into a different field rather than thinking that they need to kind of rely on their expertise in that area yeah. per se. Um, but that's one area. But even there, I think I'm hoping that this notion of like um, the kind of social component of this, of it being sometimes um, really difficult, kind of discouraged um, uh, to, to venture out into, to, into different field. I hope that can, could also perhaps be made easier by AI um, because it can provide you that glue uh, of explaining that other area to you where you, perhaps you don't lose face uh, by not knowing like too, too little about it um, and where you can provide that little bit of like intro course almost to an area where um, you can actually afterwards apply your field much easier to that space without mm-hmm. having to know all the different bits and pieces, you know? So hopefully it's, it's can, it can serve a bit as a connecting uh, tissue uh, between areas. I don't know of a, a specific project that I would point to here, but I'm just hoping that uh, this will happen along the way. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Convinced. You have such a bird's eye view on on these various interesting fields, Alison. So where where would you say what what are fields where progress was actually much faster than many people would have thought, and what are fields where it is actually like behind? And uh, are there potential like underlying reasons for these differences and, and progress that we see across various fields? Where is it behind? It's not just one field, but for me, it's like within each field, we have made a lot more progress. I think that we could have hoped for on the incremental challenges in in a field. Like we've made mm-hmm. a ton of progress on them, um, and perhaps even more so than we could have perhaps like initially predicted or something. Um, but then I think we really have made much less progress than we would have hoped on the long term challenges, mm-hmm. and that's kind of sad because. I think it's mostly stemming from the fact that, and that's not my my thought, but I think Adam Marblestone pointed this out in a um, in an article once that so many of the kind of foundational technologies that would be really revolutionary across the board, let's say something like molecular uh, manufacturing, you know, that would have implications not just for one specific application, but for applications across the board of material science and pretty much like most things that we do physically and most manufacturing related things that we do physically. So it would have really wide sweeping consequences on the world. Um, But for something like this general purpose technology to be pushed forward, we need this kind of like approach where for each individual application within that general purpose, uh, within that general purpose um, stack that, uh, this technology would influence, there's always a much more incremental way in which we could solve that specific problem. And so getting this funding to do the kind of like root technology, like the general purpose thing at the bottom of the stack will always be comparatively less interesting if you look at a specific problem than going a different route to that specific problem. And so, you know, because we often try to solve these 
specific problems, when everybody look or like the, the general purpose thing always looks um, comparatively less interesting to fund mm. um, because we never mm. really think about, but if we could do that, it would also make progress here, 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 and here. Um, and so because we think more in terms of like individual, like incremental bits and pieces that we want to be, be better at, um, we, we kind of like tend to lose sight of the forest for the trees <laughs> uh, to some extent. Um, and I think that is true for many, many general purpose technologies across the stack, really. And there's no, just no, no one particular uh, funder that's large enough to kind of be interested in all these different areas, right? People mm-hmm. are usually trying to solve a specific problem in these fields. Very true. Yeah. And so we've been talking a little bit about AI already. So would you say that progress in AI has been faster than experts expected in the past or has it been lagging behind? Well, again, I think here it depends on like, I guess, which experts um, <laughs> and, and, and at which points in time, you know, like I think uh, if you just look at the metaculous um Well, if you anchor on the metaculous predictions for, for AGI, um, I think they a year ago the community metaculous. Sorry for um, for those people who may not know, metaculous is a forecasting platform that is often used in the Bay Area uh, and, and and globally. Like it's a global platform where people can forecast on um, on on basically anything really, but they often tend to focus on issues that are of technological importance for the long term um, future. And so it's a really great. Um, platform also because many of the people that are forecasting are actually working on these technologies. So they have this kind of inside view on them too. Um, and uh, anyway, so they basically have individual people forecasting and then the community prediction is often better than each individual person. So they really like weighted, uh, so they ranked, uh, they, they ranked and really found this out that oftentimes kind of like the prediction that uh, the, the entirety of the kind of like collective intelligence can come up with is better than each individual predictor. And so if we just anchored uh, on the, on their predictions, They, I think, um, were expecting um, the community prediction for AI progress in uh, a year ago, roughly, was 2042 uh, until we would reach AGI, artificial general intelligence, or like sparks thereof, and they define it in a very concrete way. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, a year later, it's at 2032. And so oh, it wow. dropped by 10 years wow. in the span of one year. And wow. so if you anchored on that, you would think, well, we're making progress much faster than we thought you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and even there, you know, for most people, I guess in the, uh, for most people in the mainstream, I guess, if you told them that we would have had AGI by 2042, they would have thought that that's an incredibly ambitious timeline, mm-hmm. even though for many people in the Bay Area, that was a very conservative timeline. You know, many people, now that we're, the community prediction of metabolism is at 32 Many people think that that's a long timeline, you know, which definitely doesn't make, make you worrying to be up at night. So it really depends which sub-community you ask, you know, uh, whether or not we've made progress faster. In general, if you look at civilization at large, I think we've definitely made progress faster than we thought, like what the average person would think. If you look at the kind of like rationalist Bay Area community, they are expecting short timelines and we're kind of like on track for them. But even people are metaculous then. Uh, definitely had some inside view. We've made progress faster than uh, most many people were thinking. And it's also because of the fact that once you start making progress and other mainstream actors start piling in, you see a lot more investment. And suddenly that's why suddenly timelines also shorten mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So once you start seeing the first moments of progress, even if you thought that progress was arriving at a specific age, suddenly you see that other people see and everyone suddenly right. knows this. Mm-hmm. And so everyone kind of accelerates the timelines mm-hmm. by like pushing more on them. Right. Um, and so I think that's why you saw this very big drop because um, people updated on the fact that now many people 
know that AI is a thing um, and many people are like uh, putting their money where their mouth is yeah. Yeah. in that area. So yeah, it's somewhat reflexive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a great point. So one of the things that you mentioned in your seminar, which which actually struck me, was that the uh, that, that AI uh, is apparently most worrying to the AI experts themselves, whereas you know beyond them, people seem to be relatively happy and content about the developments. So why do you think that is? Well, I would give one big exception to that first of all, and that's bio. So in bio. Mm -hmm. And perhaps molecular nanotechnology too. Like if you look at people really working on biotechnologies, they are, I think also see um, a big risks from AI, for a big risk from AI because of the fact that it may be possible to develop bioweapons. Mm -hmm. it, it may be possible for the types of actors that otherwise really wouldn't have been e easily able to develop bioweapons through AI. It may be possible for them to mm -hmm. to actually make progress much faster. And we have seen some very scary examples of this um, where just researchers tried to do this as a toy exercise to see how easy it would be. And they're just like, Oh, this is very bad. Um, and, and so I think bio, I would kind of bracket out there and maybe to some extent also molecular nanotechnology to the extent that you think that we can reach something like gray goo, which I think most people are relatively um, skeptical about. And I think rightfully so, at least in the near term future, um, but even for some molecular um, nanotechnology stuff, it may be, Some people are also aware of the risks there. So I would say not everyone across the board is super excited about it, even in other technical domains. But I think, you know, for, let's say, something like longevity, right? Like if you are trying to kind of like develop new biomarkers or if you are trying to kind of like standardize across them, um, AI is just such a useful tool, you know, for like molecular simulations. The other bit that I brought up, I think, during the seminar is, you know, Previously, it is just really difficult for us to kind of like <laughs> to solve the protein folding problem in our head or to <laughs> like, it's just like not just difficult. I would argue we think um, it's pretty frankly like impossible for many of the areas that we actually care about solving this problem for. And so there, I think seeing tools like um, AlphaFold2 come along and then seeing versions or like, you know, kind of like new developments like Rosetta and so forth that help humans grasp the space that we're not made to grasp with our head is amazing. And I should say, it's not that we haven't, we wouldn't have predicted this. Like Eric Drexler, when he wrote Engines of Creation, which was speaking like in 1987, right? Or 1986, I think when it was really written. And um, he wrote about the fact that um, the kind of advancements of AI will massively help molecular nanotechnology because we're not made for wrapping our head around it. And so he talked about this, kind of like paradigm of design ahead where we would basically be able through AI and other software and simulation tools, be able to model much earlier what we are not able to build now. And that also, that is great because it tells us a little bit like where we should be focusing our actually experimental power on, which is very difficult and expensive to do in a lab. But it also tells us a little bit about potential risks that may be arising from technologies. And so maybe we can also use the AI modeling and simulation as a safety enhancing factor on the long run. But I think Yeah, it's mostly because AI allows allows a type of approach to data visualization and analysis that we're not made to do in our human heads. I guess mm -hmm. that's why I think many people are excited. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are the biggest opportunities and threats to humanity moving forward? Wow, oh, okay, we have four minutes for this. <laughs> um, well, the biggest opportunities... I think really lie in the beneficial use of AI for human flourishing, like across the different scientific fields. So like mm -hmm. 
you know, we don't care about, you know, neurotechnology or whole brain innovation um, for the sake of it. Um, but we care about it because we think it will make human lives better uh, if done well, right? And the same for nanotechnology, the same for biotechnology. We don't just care about biotechnology development per se, but we care about it because we think that longevity, um, you know, fighting many of the age-related diseases that, um, you know, kind of like rip people apart these days, fighting them at the root cause is actually better for humanity. And so I think that um, using AI to advance all of these fields for these positive goals um, is, I think, the biggest opportunity that we have. So really looking at that intersection, looking how these tools can benefit these scientific fields, um, that would be wonderful. We need a lot more translation, basically, from the brute force AI tools into individual areas. And we see that to some extent, but I think always, uh, you know, we've seen so much progress from ChatGPT now. And I think now I'm really excited for like, what can people do with these tools, not just for next token prediction, where the next token is a word or a letter or whatever you may have, but where the next token is a scientific to token, like a data token. I think that is really like one of the most exciting uh, areas that we can benefit from. And then on the flip side, that is also one of the areas that is scariest, I think, to think about because of the bio risk that I just mentioned. Uh, and I think just to throw another risk into the mix, I think the computing and computer security risk is also massively undervalued. And I think we should be spending much more resources and attention on that. And if people are interested in that, like we do have this kind of like AI safety grant program that's focusing on neurotechnologies for AI, that's focusing on um, on cryptography and security approaches for AI security and on multipolar AI scenarios. Um, we have a new computer security prize out for that. So we are trying to kind of rally the troops a little bit, but just in terms of how much, how many applications we got over the first few months that we've launched this program, we're entirely unable to service all the applications that we received. Wow. <laughs> so we need more funders in the space. We need absolutely need more funders to fund, um, to fund progress at these intersections. And um, because uh, with, yeah, it's, it's just otherwise not really feasible to make any dent on it. Mm -hmm. Well, to lighten it up at the end of this episode, then maybe um, we would progress to our lightning round. So we have a couple of short questions that are not about the risks and opportunity uh, for humanity, <laughs> but a little more lightweight. Um, so yeah, um, what's your favorite piece of science fiction? Oh, very hard. I think do still like Diamond Age. Also very much like Permutation City. I am a big fan of things like, what is it called? Is it called The Final Question? It's very short. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, the Last Question. Uh, also mm -hmm. very, very cool. Uh, very, very cool story. And what is the craziest idea you've seen people pursue in the name of progress? Um, lots of the individual personalized longevity Uh, techniques that many people <laughs> the in the foster community are pursuing. <laughs> um, I'm not just talking about fecal transplants, but like uh, many other like more interesting bits and pieces that, um, you know, I'm sure, I mean, I'm signed up to Quaronix, so I guess people think that that's weird, but, um, uh, but there's other stuff out there that is even weird for me. <laughs> If you could instantly become an expert in any scientific field, um, which would it be? That is very difficult. I would think physics probably. And final one, what's your most unscientific hobby or interest that you have? Dancing. I love yeah, dancing. Okay. That is easy. <laughs> and especially roller dancing. Dancing on oh, rollerblades cool. is my absolute favorite weird hobby. That sounds fun. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks so much for, for coming and talking to us, Alison. This was a great pleasure. Thank it was really Alison. fun. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. And it was really, really fun. I love the conversation. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Future of Science podcast. If you like this episode, please remember to review and subscribe to this podcast. You can learn more about the DSAF Foundation at dsafoundation.org. See you next time.